Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, January 28th, 2024, we continue our series titled, Knowing Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. Today's sermon, Authentic Faith, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Enjoy. The passage that we're looking at this morning in Luke chapter 12 flows right out of a uh, confrontation that Jesus has with the Pharisees in chapter 11. The Pharisees, if you remember, are this hyper-religious order of the Jewish faith. And uh, they considered themselves to be the most committed followers of the law that there were. And probably in many ways, they probably were. I mean, they were so law-focused that they seemed to miss Jesus. Of course, they thought they were holy and righteous. Jesus didn't see it that way. See, Jesus is able to look inside and see their heart. He's able to see their motives. And as a result of all that, he will call them hypocrites. I gotta tell you something. If there's an uglier word in Christianity than hypocrite, I don't know what it would be. Um, very little could be worse spiritually than to be called hypocrite. Imagine having the God of the universe look at you and call you hypocrite. That is exactly what you'll see in the passage here. Verse 1, Jesus will look at the Pharisees and he will speak of their hypocrisy. And Jesus here is just finished confronting them and now he's going to stop and he's going to tell his followers what a real faith, an authentic faith look like. That's what makes this passage so important. Why it matters so much. He's going to use some hard words and he's going to use some really comforting words to sort of explain to us what that authentic faith really does look like. The context here in verse 1 starts off and tells us that there are thousands of people that have come together. They have gathered together to see and to hear Jesus. And they're literally so excited about seeing Jesus that they're trampling all over each other. Jesus will see this moment as the perfect moment. Hearts are open, people are excited. The perfect moment uh, to talk about authentic faith. Now, you've got to remember here that there was no mass communication at this time. No TV, no radio. Uh, remember years ago, did you ever see those pictures where people would drive around in a car and they had this massive, like, speaker, you know, and this megaphone kind of thing on the car, and they would talk on a deal and try to, you know, let people know that somebody was in town or a circus was in town or something, you know, like, they didn't have anything like that. No internet, no Instagram, no, you know, no email, no Twitter or, or X, whatever you want to call it. Just purely word of mouth. And yet, thousands show up. Can you imagine? I mean, just hearing, hey, you know who's coming? He's on his way here. I heard it. Jesus is coming. People were excited. Super excited. Thousands of them may not sound like a, a lot maybe to you, but in the first century, this was absolutely enormous. This is the perfect time for Jesus to describe what an authentic faith looks like. So let's stop and let's read here the beginning of this. Let's look at the first three verses here. Luke 12, 1 through 3. He says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another, 
he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So the first thing that Jesus is going to tell us here in verses 1 through 3 is that an authentic faith doesn't include hypocrisy. Now again, he starts off with this massive crowd there in verse 1, super excited. In fact, they're jostling so much to try to get near him that they're literally trampling you know, on each other doing this. And in the middle of this, Jesus stops and he warns them to be on your guard against hypocrisy. Why? Well, because hypocrisy, like leaven or yeast, is an expanding agent. Just a little bit gets put in something and it might be slow and it might take some time, but ultimately it will expand to the whole lump like yeast would do in bread. What Jesus is saying here is, the warning here is that you know, these, these Pharisees, they come along and they have these things in their lives, but they think because they follow one part of the, they follow the law, that everything they do is okay and it's not. That what's really inside of them will begin to show up in other areas. It doesn't take very long, you know, for a person to become, you know, critical of someone else. And then all of a sudden, you know, that critical means now you're telling other people and you become a gossip. Or, or beyond that, you start using language that would just be disparaging to the Lord or other things over and over. It just starts and it begins to grow. Jesus warns them to stay away from that. That shouldn't be true of our lives. You know, hypocrisy is not, um, I sinned. We all sin. Hypocrisy is not, I made a bad choice. We've all made bad choices. Hypocrisy is, I'm doing something wrong, and I know it, but I don't think anybody else knows it. And I think I can get away with it. Jesus here in verses 2 and 3 are very clear, you do not get away with it. In verse 2, he will tell you that everything that seems to be covered is going to be uncovered. Everything that seems to happen and we think is hidden, it's in the dark, it's going to be revealed. Verse 3 here tells us that we actually are deceiving ourselves if we believe that it's hidden, because it's not. The language that we use, the words that we use, our thoughts, maybe the motives that we have, all those secrets will one day be brought out into the light. You know, if I'm putting on some act spiritually while I have areas of my life that are totally unholy and I know that and I seem to be fine with it because I feel like no one else are going to find it out, not only is that hypocrisy, it's foolishness because it will become public in heaven. Now that brings up a question. What about all the stuff that I've already gone to God and asked him to forgive me for? I mean, stuff I've asked him to forgive me and I've repented of and you know, I agree with him that it was wrong, and, and I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, is God going to judge that all over again? The answer is no. That's not who our God is. Listen to what the scriptures say about what happens when we bring our sin before the Lord and ask him to forgive us. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, it says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am the one, he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Hebrews 10, 17, he says, and then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Jeremiah 31, 34, look at the very last sentence there. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I mean, the common truth here that is so amazing is God, who knows all things, including every word you're about ready to speak, he knows the thoughts that you have, has the ability to not remember. You can't do that. I can't do that. If you wrong me, I can forgive you but I'm not capable of not remembering things that happened in my life. God is so amazing and perfect and powerful that he's capable of not only saying, I forgive you, but I will choose not to remember it. I have that kind of power. I won't remember it anymore. Think about that. An all-powerful, all-knowing God has the ability not to remember anymore. How does that happen? 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. I love that part. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if you're trying to hide something from God, could I encourage you to confess it, seek forgiveness from God, and be assured that the one who promises that he knows all things also promises he won't remember this. The issue here in Luke 11 and 12 is the Pharisees think no one knows their hearts and their motives, their sins. That's just bad theology. Of course the creator and sustainer of all things knows everything about us. Of course they would even know back in in Psalm 139 where God says, I know your thoughts. They should have known Hebrews chapter four where God says, I know the intentions of your heart. It's totally foolish for us to try and hide sin from God. If we're going to be authentic in our faith, we cannot do that. I've got to be able to go to the Lord, to the one who promises that he will remember no more, and I won't be a hypocrite if I do that. Now, the second thing you see here in verses 4 and 5, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So the second truth here about an authentic faith is authentic faith puts no one on God's level. Now notice here what he says here as verse 4 begins. Jesus says or calls us and the people there, my friends. I, I love that. That's how Jesus sees us. That's why he's actually in the middle of a crowd of a couple of thousand people that are jostling all over the place. That's why he came. That's why he would take on human flesh and come and and be born in in a stable for us. That's why he went to the cross. Because we matter. Now, in verse five, He's going to tell us something a little bit different here because in verse 4, he calls us my friends, and then in verse 5, he says we need to fear him. That's an odd combination, isn't it? 
Clearly, he isn't trying to terrify us. I mean, he's just told us here that we're, you know, we're his friends. What I need to remember is that Jesus is the perfect balance between being totally powerful and totally loving all together perfectly at the same moment. So in other words, I shouldn't have a sense of awe and a reverence for people. I shouldn't think so highly of someone that I look at everything they say and they sort of sway my thinking or they sway my moral choices or they sway my direction. The awe and the reverence I ought to have ought to be for him. He's the one that affects my thinking. He's the one that, that changes my morals and my, my direction, my choice. I shouldn't be terrified of, of him. He's my friend, but I should have a reverent respect for his power. You know, C.S. Lewis tried to explain this, you know, uh, this powerful truth here, how the two really fit together in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. You remember reading that? You know, maybe even seeing the movie. There's this powerful scene where the character, the Christ character in the story is Aslan, this, this massive, big lion. And, 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 you know, even the evil ones are afraid of him because he's got this great power, you know. And so finally, one of the children in the story, they go up and ask another one of the characters, Mr. Tumnus, uh, you know, about Aslan. And they ask, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Tumnus says, oh, no, he's not safe but he's good. Meaning, oh no, he has the power to send you into hell. He has the power to destroy all things. I mean, he's already done it once. He's got all that power, but you don't understand. He's good. In fact, he's better than good. He's gracious. That's our God. All-powerful, all-loving totally holy, perfectly merciful, absolutely righteous, thankfully graceful, all at the same time, perfectly. So why does he mention fear or reverence here? Well, that's because verse five tells us that he alone has the authority to put someone in hell. Satan does not have that power. He is a creation I mean, if you know your Bible, you know that you go to the very last book and, and, and you read in the book of Revelation that Satan himself is judged. He's not the one you need to fear. He doesn't have that kind of a power or authority over us. He will be judged. Now, the third thing you see here in verses 6 and 7 is this. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So the third thing he's going to tell us here in verses 6 and 7 is that authentic faith finds comfort in God's love. In other words, authenticity, authenticity of faith is understanding God's love for us and his knowledge of every single circumstance and every detail of our lives. Remember, he's just said to us back in verse 4, referred to us as friends. Now he will remind us of our value to him in verse 6. Every part, he says, of creation really matters. He says, not even five sparrows, which are sold for just two cents, not even two of them will fall to the ground without me being completely aware of it all. 
God knows and cares about every detail, the smallest of details, even when these birds hit the ground. I mean, he knows everything. Nothing is forgotten. And the truth is, you are way more valuable than any bird. Now, I risk getting in trouble here, but you're just going to have to go ahead and forgive me on this one, okay? Um, I don't put birds and people on the same level. I'm probably going to get an email. That's so wrong, so mean of you. Um, they're a creation of God. I'm thankful for them. We need to be good stewards of them. But the only part of God's creation, the highest part of God's creation that matters here is human beings because we are created in his image. Nothing else comes close to that. He's using this as an example. If even these things that no one really, really cares about, no one has a count on them, no one knows, even, even if two of them fall on the ground, he knows it all. So how much more us? I mean, we're way more valuable than any bird. Verse 7 here shows the detail of his care here. He goes back and he says, Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Now, thankfully, many of you have made this much easier to count. I'm sorry. My wife always tells me, don't try to be funny. You always get in trouble. <laughs> Look, what I take away from verses 6 and 7 is God's care is second to none. That he knows everything thoroughly, completely, every detail, every single thing he cares about. He, he, he's perfect and complete in all of that, and I can bring every single thing to him. In fact, I've had times where, you know, I've heard people say like, oh, you know, like the kids are praying for something, and they'll be like, oh, don't pray for that. Come on, that's so, God's got bigger fish to fry. You don't need to pray for that. You're wrong. Philippians chapter four, verse six tells you, you should pray about everything. You know what, if God cares about it, it's okay for you to pray about too. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking here. You may be questioning if he really cares that much. I mean, because we can ask, well, yeah, but where is he? Why didn't he answer my request? The truth is, we can't see tomorrow. We can't see what God has in store for us. We can't see exactly what's going on. What I can do, though, is I can stop and I can look at his track record and I can decide, is he trustable? I can see the change he's made in my own life. I can sense the, the changes that come when the Holy Spirit's inside of you, leading you and directing you in this, and you take a hard heart and it becomes tender-hearted. And I trust him. Realizing all at the same time, though, that, you know, people in this world, this is a broken world. People fall down. They, they hurt themselves. We get sick. We die. And just because you're a believer, you are not immune from that. You know, when the flu bug comes through, Christ followers get sick, too. Flu bug doesn't just stop and go, oh, wait, wait, you have the Holy Spirit? Oh, I can't touch you. No. I mean, the scriptures tell us that God causes the rain to fall on the good and the bad. 
You know what he wants us to do? Learn how to trust him through every moment, through the valleys, through the mountains, all of it. Verses six and seven here are really about who we are to him, about his love, the care that he has for us. And that love should be the motivating factor to me decide to live an authentic faith out, to just to know that he loves me that much should change me. Now, verses six and seven almost sound a little contradictory if you were to go back to verse five here because what Jesus is getting, well, you know, you gotta think this through. He just said back in verse five, we're supposed to fear him. Verse four, he said we're friends, but now he's telling us you know, how really wonderful and how much he knows about it. What you realize here is a healthy fear or reverence goes with a, comfortable, a comforting knowledge of his love and his care. The two go together perfectly. You see, he's the one that has the power to give life or take life. But he loves you so much he's giving it to you. In fact, he loves you so much that he let his son go to a cross to die so that you could be with him in heaven forever. That is power and love put together in the best possible way. That's what that healthy reverence is. It's the confidence of knowing that God cares us and has the ability to move in our lives. There's a fourth thing, and that comes in verses eight, and eight, 9, and 10. He says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the, the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The fourth thing he's going to tell us here in verses 8 through 10 is authentic faith is not ashamed of following Jesus. In other words, those who confess Christ before others will have Christ confess them before the angels. And by the way, confession means a lot here because in verses 8 and 9, what you see is heaven really is a place where truth is manifested because it's all going to come out. All of that truth is going to come out. Look at verse 10, though. He, he tells us something that almost is, uh, is a little frightening there, that there is a sin that cannot and will not be forgiven. Now, I know people have questions about that. Um, this is something called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is it? I remember all the way back in Bible college before even seminary, and seminary as well in this whole thing, you realize that, and what I believe is, that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is ascribing the works of Jesus to the devil. That would be like saying, what Jesus did, the devil did it. That was the devil's work. Now, here's the thing. Since Jesus is no longer walking around on the earth doing things, but now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the time when he will come and return for his people, it's not possible for that to happen now. That only leaves you with one thing that God will not forgive. That is the failure for you to personally trust in Christ. You see, to know that there is someone who created all things, and that we honor his son, um, 
that he keeps everything in motion and all the balance, to know that he demands one thing of us, that we honor his son. For us to fail to do that is completely unforgivable. The Bible tells us that we all know. I mean, in Romans chapter one, it tells us that we, we know inside that there is someone higher above us. We can try to push it away. We can try to fight against that. But we know. And we're without excuse. To confess that Jesus is anything other than God the Son, that he is the Lord, the Messiah, is completely unforgivable. There's a fifth thing, a final thing here that he's going to say in verses 11 and 12. And that is, is when, you, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The fifth thing he's going to tell us about authentic faith is authentic faith is Holy Spirit-led. The Holy Spirit is there to help us, to teach us, to lead us. And you know, it's very possible that you've had those moments where he's actually done that in your life. I mean, I can think of times like that where somehow or other I got into a conversation, maybe I wasn't even really prepared for it, and the door just opened up and God used the things that I said to challenge for his glory. You ever had those moments? Those moments happen when I make myself available to the Holy Spirit when I'm listening. Authentic faith is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Authentic faith is available to the Holy Spirit. That tells me that if I refuse to speak in a situation like that, my excuse is I don't know enough. Well, I'm ignoring what the Holy Spirit actually does. I'm ignoring the Holy Spirit's power and his job. So the question here is this, what is the Holy Spirit talking to you about? I mean, maybe serving? Maybe it's being, you know, available to share your faith, maybe with a coworker, your neighbor, somebody in your family. Maybe it's your stewardship. Because here's the thing, if you're a believer, and I want to be really clear here about this, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is talking to you. Because see, Ephesians chapter one says at the moment of salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. At that moment, you were sealed in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's job, again, is to direct you, to teach you, to convict you, to all those things like that, to lead your life. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Or are you resisting? You're sort of fighting back, trying to hold the Holy Spirit off. Ah, oh, not a good time. Mm. This morning, we're going to be taking communion. And I'm going to ask that the, the band come back and join me. We're going to be taking communion, and we're going to do this maybe a little bit differently. If you don't have the communion stuff, you can find them in your seats there. If you need some more and you didn't get one, would you just simply slip your hand up? We have some people that will get one to you if you need some. Okay. 
When Paul writes about communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want you to hear what he has to say about this. In verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, you're supposed to take communion this morning if you're a believer. You need to take communion, but you're not supposed to do it with the wrong heart, with things between you and the Lord. You are supposed to examine yourself, get right before the Lord, and then take it. It's a great reminder of what he did for us, his death on a cross for us. And so I want to give you a moment here to make yourself right before the Lord before we take communion. And then I'm going to ask you five simple questions for you to deal with between you and the Lord. Here's the first question. Is there anything that you feel like you're hiding? The God who knows all things knows every motive you have. He's asking you to come clean. Not asking you to come clean with your neighbor. He's asking you to come clean with him. Second question, is there anyone or anything that I've put on God's level? Jesus' warning there was, don't, don't be, you know, don't give reverence to these people. Don't fear the people that they can't, they can't do anything. You ought to be fearing me. Have you put anybody on that kind of level where you're following them and not following the Lord? You you value them more than you value Jesus. The third question, am I trusting in his love for me? Not trusting in myself, but trusting in his love, his care the details of which he knows all things about me. Fourth question. Do I have an unashamed confession of Jesus? Or have I been ashamed? Maybe you need to get right with the Lord on that. And the fifth thing, am I following the spirits leading in my life or am I resisting? Paul writes, 
In verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. Father, we want our hearts to be authentic, God, right before you completely, listening completely to everything your Holy Spirit is telling us and leading us to do. Lord, we love you. We know that you love us. Help us to live this life to honor you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. What are you building your life on? The Pharisees, the foundation was not Jesus. It was religion. It was spiritual. But it wasn't Jesus. If you're going to have an authentic faith, you got to quit playing the religious game. You have to come to Jesus and trust him. Don't be hiding things. He knows it already. Don't put anything at his level. Trust in his love. Don't be ashamed that you know him and you trust him and you, you serve him. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Say yes when the Holy Spirit is asking. Do what he's called you to do and you will become who God wants you to be. This week, trust, trust not in you, trust in the Lord. Watch what God does with a life that wants, desires to be authentically in love with him. God bless you guys. Have a great day.